are the party of real change, declared Jeremy Corbyn at the launch of Labour's manifesto. In fact, he was borrowing language from David Cameron. David Cameron actually had used it for the Conservatives in 2010. Um, and in fact, they were words that had been borrowed directly from Obama's campaign in America. Everyone trying to say, we're the party of, of change. But they've got it all wrong. They're not the parties of real change. We are. We are. It's the Christian church announcing the message of grace that promises radical change in the lives of men and women. And the change we're talking about is so much bigger than those which politicians offer. We declare that because of what Jesus Christ did on a cross, ordinary failures like us can be made new on the inside, our past can be dealt with, our present can be empowered, and our future can be glorious. And all of that happens in an instant. In Bible language, it talks about the fact that we are born again. That is, uh, we are raised from spiritual death to life. In Bible language, we are redeemed. We've been bought out of the slavery that we once were in. In Bible language, we are justified. We're given a new legal standing before the throne of God. In Bible language, we are reconciled. It means we're adopted into the family of God. And this phenomenal change all takes place in a moment. Once I was lost, now I am found. Once I was dead, now I am alive. Once I was the slave of Satan, now I am a child of God. And Christians around the globe Rejoice and delight in the fact that they have experienced this radical change. But the terrible tragedy is so many of them think that the change stops there. That's it. They've got their ticket to heaven. And all they have to do is live out the remainder of their years until Jesus comes or calls, and oh yeah, they still need to go to church and do the occasional job to help out, but they're not expecting any more change. For them, they reckon it all happened at conversion, at the time when they were born again. But nothing could be further from the truth. Friends, conversion is not the end of the journey, it's just the beginning. And God's purpose is that the radical change experienced at the time of salvation should be ongoing in the life of every believer, making them more like Jesus, making them more useful on earth, making them more ready for heaven. The theological word for that is sanctification. It's a word that some Christians can't spell and even more don't understand. You see, that's actually why preaching Bible truth in church is central. Sermons are not for your entertainment, although I don't think many of you thought they were, but sermons are not for your entertainment. Sermons are not theological lectures. 
Sermons, you see, attempt to take Bible truths and apply them to the lives we live in the 21st century. In other words, sermons are about change. They're about you changing. They're about you readjusting your life so that it gets in line with God's amazing purposes. They're about you changing step so that you march to his beat and move to his rhythm. That's why these character studies in Genesis are staggeringly relevant. They show us things as they really are. They reveal to us more of the character of God. They illustrate essential truth through the lives of real-life characters like Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. For although these men were loved and accepted by Almighty God, they were deeply flawed people. And the story of their lives, as, as is recorded for us in Genesis, is the story of God's amazing patience as he graciously goes on changing them. We see that, above all, in the life of Jacob. This guy had been a schemer. He was a deceiver ever since fighting his twin brother in his mother's womb. He was always trying to manipulate situations to his advantage. And it got to the point where he had to escape to his uncle Laban's far away. Now, please remember that for all his many faults, Jacob was still a child of God. And God was at work to bless him and to change him. And for his good, God exposed him to an even bigger cheat than he was. And Jacob began to see through the emptiness of a life built upon human scheming rather than upon divine grace. He, he was there working for his uncle, but there was cheating Uncle Laban, who actually was getting poorer and poorer. In fact, we uh, see him running around looking for his impotent gods. And as Jacob escapes from Laban's land and heads back to the land that God had promised him, we do see signs of grace and change in his life. But as we meet up with Jacob at the beginning of chapter 32, we discover that actually he's literally between a rock and a hard place. The rock is a pile of stones that he and Laban have erected at the border of their lands. And the veiled threat there is that if Jacob is ever to come that way again, he'll meet extreme force. It's a boundary that they've erected. Go north, you're in trouble. But the hard place is the land he's entering. It's where his brother lives. And we need to remember the last words his mother spoke to him. Recorded in Genesis 27 from verse 42. I think they'll be on the screen. There they are. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while while your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. So, Jacob had been there, 
but he hadn't had any word. There was no news. He, he didn't know whether his mother was dead or whether his brother was still intent on killing him. So he couldn't go north at this point, back into Laban's territory. And he was terrified of going south into Esau's territory. And yet this was what God had told him to do. And in the next 32 verses, we see him swinging between his old nature. His old nature was the nature in which he would try and control and manipulate situations. And on the other hand, trusting in the promises and the power of God. We are seeing pictures of change. Yet we also see the wisdom and grace of God in this chapter because he goes on changing this man, making him more like the man he should be, a man of courage and faith. And we'll see this is the way God often has to work in self-reliant people like us, bringing us to a point of helplessness where all we have left is him. There are three lessons that Jacob learnt and we need to learn. Lesson one is this, you are not alone, God is present. You are not alone, God is present. Those first two verses of Genesis 32, Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanehim or something like that. Now, now we're deliberately meant to remember something at this point. These, there are strong echoes here of something that took place earlier in Jacob's life. In fact, the expression, the angels of God, occurs only twice in the Old Testament, and the previous time was back in chapter 28, when Jacob had left his homeland and set off for Haran. Uh, it's worth reminding ourselves of what happened then. Again, it, I think it'll be on screen, Genesis 28, 12 to 15. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God, there's the only other occurrence of the phrase, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the uh, west and to the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Now that was a glorious promise to fearful Jacob as he was running away from his brother Esau. And now it's about 21 years later, as Jacob is making his way back, into that land of promise that God gives him a lovely reminder of what he had said. Because he sees, again, this company of angels. Uh, and judging from the name he gave that place, it would seem they were camped right next to where Jacob and his entourage were. For Mahanehim literally means two camps. They, they were there. They were right next door. I wonder, have you ever seen what it's like when the queen is on tour, or the President of America makes his journey somewhere. Probably, I think, Angus will be the only person who has had up-close experience of this. But when these folks make their journey, they don't arrive in some sort of clapped-out Mondeo by themselves. You know, Queen, hopefully not Prince Philip, driving uh, the car. Um, 
No, they arrive, they are in armor-plated limos with bulletproof glass. They have armed security detail in cars back and front of them. They are surrounded by police outriders on powerful motorbikes. There are snipers and lookouts positioned along the roofs, along the route, and every drain and manhole cover has been checked for explosives. You get that picture? Well, that's just a rough idea of the protection that God was promising Jacob. I'm going to be with you. When you travel, Jacob, I'm going to be there. I'm with you. You see, it was an incredibly graphic and obvious way in which God was reminding Jacob that he had no need to fear, that he was with him, that he would protect him, that he would look after him. And could I just say this in passing? Christians here will be well aware of the promises that God makes his children today. We know what Jesus told his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel. We actually looked at it last Sunday evening. Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we know what the writer to the Hebrews reminded his Christian readers of there in Hebrews 13, verses 5 to 6. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You see, we know these things. For the Christians here, I go, you know God is with you. And you go, yeah, 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 we know that. We know that. But the trouble is, we either forget these truths, or in reality, we don't believe them. You see, I've no doubt that Jacob had a very clear recollection of all that God had promised him as he was running away into Haran. The problem was, he wasn't putting that knowledge into practice. He was fretting as if God wasn't there. And it required God's special intervention to remind him again of these glorious truths. And my own experience, my own observation from years in pastoral ministry, is that when God allows his children to go through particularly difficult and painful times, in one way or another, he will come and especially remind us of his presence. It might be something a friend says to you. And it comes with almost miraculous insight. And you know in your heart of hearts that God was in it. Reminding you of his presence. Or it might be something that the world would call a coincidence. But once again in your heart of hearts you know that it was from God. It's as if he's graciously telling you that he knows what's going on and he's there. Christian brother, Christian sister, have you had that sort of experience? Where God's just met you? And you said, yeah, I'm with you. And with such wonderful reassurances, Jacob should have been able to move forward with confidence. God has said, Jacob, I'm with you. But his old nature cropped up again. He thought he would just make sure and he would double-check that God was actually in charge. And so he sends messengers to go ahead and find Esau and check that everything is cool with him. But the response he got was not what he'd hoped for. We read this in verses 6 to 8. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. 
In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So you see what's happened. Once again, Jacob resorts to his own schemes and plans to minimize the danger. Because he knows there's no way he could defeat 400 fighting men. So he develops a plan to minimize his potential losses, and he splits his groups into two, thinking that one group might be able to escape. But this is a pretty desperate plan. So we need to move on to the second part of Jacob's education. It's this, lesson two, you can seek God, God is faithful. You can seek God, God is faithful. I think the great tragedy for so many of us is that we only get down to prayer as a last resort. You, you know, the sort of thinking, if all else fails, try prayer. And, and that certainly seems to be how Jacob operated. It's at that time of extreme tension and fear that we discover this schema giving up on his plans and seeking God. And what a prayer it is. As Jacob prays, he emphasizes three characteristics of, of God. Firstly, he acknowledges the power of God. He calls him Elohim, which means the God of power. And he recognizes that God is able to save him from the dangers that lie ahead. There in verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. So he acknowledges the power of God, and then secondly, he acknowledges the grace of God. He recognizes that he didn't deserve any of the blessings that he'd received. Verse 10, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. But thirdly, most of his prayer is based around the faithfulness of God. He calls him Lord, or Yahweh, or Jehovah. The promise-keeping God. He reminds God of his faithfulness to Abraham and Isaac and of the command that he'd given him just a few weeks before that had led him to that point. Verse 9, Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, Yahweh, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. And actually, at the end of the prayer, he again reminds God of the promises that he had been given by him those 20 or so years before. Verse 12, but you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Now, there are certain principles that emerge here, uh, which are relevant to all our praying, but especially to those prayers that we cry out at times of stress and need and anxiety. Do you notice that Jacob doesn't start with the problem? But he starts with the character of God. His prayer is rooted in what he knows about God. And could I say that's where all our praying should start, with who God is and not where you're at. You see, that's the trouble. We rush into prayer thinking about ourselves. We don't take the time to be still and to remind ourselves of who it is that we're coming before. For I tell you this, our prayers will be a lot richer and deeper and fuller when we understand who we're talking to. It will set the context 
in which all our problems can be addressed. So what's the outcome of this great prayer? Was Jacob ready to go forward with confidence and meet his brother, knowing that God would protect and provide? Or will he slip back into his old ways and try to deal with the situation through his own schemes and ideas? Well, I think you know the answer. It's back to the old Jacob again. And he arranges an elaborate softening up process. Basically, this is an extended bribe. He sends out five separate groups uh, of gifts of over 550 animals in total and tells the servants in charge of them to try and placate Esau with some groveling words. Verses 17 to 18. When my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. You see, for all the advances that we see Jacob making, and for all the opportunities God is given, giving him, this is pretty slow progress in changing Jacob's character. That old scheming, self-reliant nature keeps breaking through. He's finding it so hard to trust God utterly and completely. He still wants to keep building in his own safety nets and his fallback plans. But God hasn't finished with him yet. There's still another lesson to learn. And this is the third and final lesson. It's this. You are powerless. God is gracious. You are powerless. God is gracious. Verses 22 to 24 that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he, went over, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Here is one of the most mysterious stories in the whole Bible. On one level, we can understand to some degree what Jacob was going through. You see, he's ensured that all his family have safely crossed the Jabbok River and then he's checked to make sure all his possessions have got over as well. And there in the heavy darkness of a Middle Eastern night, Jacob is left all alone. Maybe you can imagine the thoughts that were running through his head or the anxieties and fears that filled his heart. He knew that the following day was going to be one of the most critical of his whole life. Esau was going to be arriving at any time. The adrenaline was flowing. Sleep was impossible. And then there's a noise and he's grabbed by someone. It might be Esau. It might be an assassin that he had sent. And all Jacob can do in that pitch black darkness is fight for his life. He uses every move that he knows. He uses every wrestling trick that he's aware of, but he can't win. He can't overpower this man. He has no tricks left. All he can do is hang on for grim life. And through the night this goes on until the first rays of sun appear over the eastern horizon. And then the man does something. He just touches the socket 
of Jacob's hip with his finger and it's game over. His hip is dislocated and all Jacob can do is cling on with his arms and suddenly Jacob becomes aware that he is wrestling with no ordinary man. This is none other than God incarnate. This is Jesus. So what are we to make of this? We're not given many clues in the text, and Bible commentators have suggested 101 different interpretations. And it's further complicated by the words of verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with this man. Now, how could this be? If the one wrestling with Jacob is none other than God, then why couldn't he overpower him? Well, let me suggest to you what is happening here. We need to interpret it in the context of all that God is doing in Jacob's life. I think maybe the best picture to illustrate this is of a dad wrestling with his young son. And all dads have done this with their sons. And if they haven't, they should. And by the way, daughters need hugs and cuddles from their dads, not wrestling matches. But have you, am I the only dad, I wonder, who's gone through this? You see, in these play wrestling matches, the five-year-old boy will do everything he can to overcome his dad. And dad actually encourages him to do that. And so the boy will try to rip dad's head off and break his arms and kick his legs and crush his chest and punch his face and he will use dad to try out every wrestling move that he saw on WWE. He'll use the pile driver, he'll use the clothesline and especially the move where you can jump from a high piece of furniture right down onto dad's stomach. Not of course, not uh, that I've obviously had any experience of this with my own son. That's what you do, isn't it? When you're a dad. Now, what is dad doing? Why is dad doing all of this? See, well, because of his strength, dad can easily deflect all these blows. And with his arms, he can easily wrap up his son to limit the damage. But because he's dad, he'll never use his strength to hurt or injure his boy. It's just a training thing. It's just one of those rites of passage. Now take that imagery. Dad's here. You've got an advantage. Take that imagery and apply it to what is happening with Jacob. At any time, God could have brought that fight to an end, but he's training Jacob through it. He wants him to learn lessons. And what becomes obvious is that Jacob is a match for any man. His strength, his plans, his scheming. That's what's meant when the text tells us that the man couldn't overpower him. The man couldn't overpower him. But what Jacob learns is that he can't overpower God. Just one touch of God's finger is enough to end the fight. And so Jacob learns that he is powerless before the plans and purposes of God. They can't be defeated. They can't be circumvented. They can't be manipulated. God is God, and before him we are as nothing. 
But this same God is also incredibly gracious. And Jacob realizes that. So little wonder he says this in verse 26. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And little wonder he names the place as he does in verse 30. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. And it's this recognition of his own powerlessness that is the pivotal point in Jacob's life. Um, you may not, I, I just want to argue that th this verse is quite key. Genesis 32 to 27, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Now, do you see how incredibly significant this is. Remember that names in those days had far greater significance than just identifying someone. I'm Andy, that just means I happen to have the name Andy. But when Jacob said he was Jacob, it was a description of his character. And in speaking his name to God, Jacob was indeed acknowledging that he was what his name said he was, that he was a twister, that he was a deceiver. Jacob was willing to recognize himself for who he was. And because of that, and only because of that, God was able to move him on to a place of mercy and usefulness. His changed character is now reflected in his changed name. Verse 28, then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Yes, he had overcome, not God, but himself. He'd recognized that he was a schemer and a deceiver and had been brought to the point of powerlessness, realizing that God alone was the one who could and should be trusted. Look at the opening verses of uh, chapter 33. We didn't go into reading that, but just notice their significance. The man has changed. Genesis 33, verses 1 to 2. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Now, where does Jacob come? After everything we have seen, everything we know about him, you and I know that Jacob would have come last. The old Jacob would have come last. He'd have come behind the easy escape route, ready to do a runner should Esau start attacking because that's what the old Jacob would have done. Instead, we read this at the beginning of verse 3. I just find it so moving. He himself went on ahead. The man has changed. The crisis brought him to the point of trust in God. And that may well be what some of you here are going through right now. You've come to a time of crisis. You're facing a situation that's beyond you. You're feeling helpless I'm very alone, and there's nothing you can do. And however much you may rage and fight, however much you have grown stressed 
and anxious and maybe even ill because of this situation. However many sleepless nights you're facing, could I tell you this? God is calling you to trust him completely. To give up on your plans and your futile schemes. And he wants you to remember that he is gracious. And that he loves you. And that he wants the best for you. And that he can be trusted absolutely. So it's time to stop fighting. It's time to admit that you're a sinful failure. It's time to face up to your own weakness. You may be raging against God. But all the time he is holding on to you in love. So why don't you seek his blessing rather than fight against his plans? Why don't you go out of here a changed person? Why don't you face the battles of tomorrow looking to our gracious God and to his almighty strength and wisdom and promised presence? rather than relying upon your own futile plans and ideas. Look, I, 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 I don't know the issues that you're, you're having to face. Some of you, you're probably saying, yeah, it doesn't relate to me at this moment in time. That, that, that's fine. It will at some point, by the way. But maybe there are others of you here and your hearts are breaking in ways that others in this congregation know nothing about. And you've worked out in your own mind all the plans, all the schemes, all the insurance policies, everything that goes with it. Your job hasn't been going well. You're worried about the future and what that holds. In your family, there is heartbreak. And you keep giving God an agenda. This is what you should do, God. And you have your plans and you have your schemes, but there comes a time that all we can do is recognize that he is God. And we're powerless. But he is gracious. And he is good. And he is trustworthy. So we can go in his strength. Let's pray.